You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. Axe Church Northwest is located in Vancouver, Washington, and we have services meeting each week at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. You can also join us online live at our 11 a.m. service each Sunday. If you'd like to know more about Axe Church Northwest, you can go to axechurchnw.org. Now enjoy the sermon. Oh, let's just pray as we get started. Father, I love you. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for these people, Lord. I thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your transformative power, the power of your cross. We pray for all those who just can't be with us right now for any number of reasons, that we would see them again soon, that you would uh, do your work, what needs to be done, that we might start to come together fully as a body again. Lord, I thank you for each person that can be here today, that we can spend some time together in your word and worshiping you. Lord, I pray you'd make us worshipers in spirit and in truth, that we would understand how blessed we are to be your children. Help us as we go through the word today in your name. Amen. If you want to write a poem or a song about a person, you need to know something significant about him or her. If you, if you write about, say, a girl that you find beautiful but you've never met her, you don't know anything about her, you may have something to say about her beauty but you're probably saying more about you than about her, and you won't have much else to say in your poem or your song. And uh, Those are the relatively shallow poems that you hear. It goes something like, roses are red, violets are blue, she's really pretty, and I'm kind of a stalker. Um, or the songs that say, hey, baby, 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 baby. Um, you've probably heard some of those. But you're hardly going to be named a poet laureate for such work. If you want to express emotions that are deep, emotions that make other people have empathy and catharsis and feel it, you have to know the person you're writing about deeply, truly, and passionately. The songs I would have written to my wife in the first couple of weeks that I knew her would have probably been something like New Kids on the Block would write, right? But the songs after 20 years of marriage and partnering in life together through Christ, my passion and my love and my ache for her when I'm not with her, my understanding of who she is as a person, as a mother, as a wife, as as a woman of God, those songs would be more like something Bob Dylan might write or, or Solomon might write because they're deep and they're passionate and they have a feeling and knowledge of the one that I love. Because knowledge of the loved leads to growing and mature passion for the loved. Now, we're going to dig into the Psalms today. I'm excited to study and learn these songs, Psalms that we have in Scripture, praising God, prophesying Jesus, questioning God over suffering and and proclaiming His faithfulness. And, and, and so much more that, that we'll find in the Psalms. And the, these are songs that were written meant to be sung to music, to instruments. Uh, poems written by people who knew God, who knew the Word of God, who were passionate and mature and loved Him and sought after God, who went through life and difficulties and trials and pains and, and begged for God to be present with them. 
to intervene, to give them strength, to give them victory over their enemies, to save them. These are, are not people who just thought God was pretty and sang a New Kids on the Block song to them. These were God's loving servants, expressing their emotions, inspired by the Holy Spirit, their feelings that came from deep inside, real and raw. I'm thrilled and humbled to study the Psalms with you because uh, we get to take so much of the teaching that we, that we do so often that we've gone through and sort of connect a lot of the more intellectual with the really emotional. We are intellectual and emotional people, right? We can, very few people get real excited about two plus two equaling four. But there are people who get excited about math, right, Julie? Tiffany? Yeah. There are people who do, right? There, there's the intellectual and there's the emotional and they're, both, and they're both there and they're both part of what makes us people made in the image and likeness of God. And we ought to think well, strongly. And we ought to feel well and strongly. We ought to use both emotions and intellect in a good and godly way. And often uh, the important thing is not to allow our emotion to twist and break our good thinking. And rather to allow good thinking to sort of steward our emotions. I sort of see it like the dam breaks, right? Are you allowed to use that word? It's what holds the water back. It breaks. The water's flowing. And it's either going to overcome you or it's going to get channeled to where it needs to go. Good thinking is what helps us feel in a godly way. Let me give you an example. My wife has a blender. It's a Vitamix. It was a Mother's Day present, and she loves it. She loves this blender. As much as someone can have love and passion for a blender, my wife has that for this blender, okay? When she first got it, she'd make smoothies for us, and she'd bring them to us. And a couple of times, she brought me one of those smoothies, and she had made it, and she had put kale in the smoothie. Let me just put this out there, okay? Kale tastes like garbage. Don't know if you've had it. Tastes like garbage. Doesn't matter if everything else in the smoothie is delicious. She could literally make it with like a gallon of ice cream and bananas and strawberries and syrup and whatever. You put one leaf of kale in there and it's like fish vomit or something. It's, it's really, seriously, just don't do it, okay? Do yourself a favor if you, if you were thinking, I think I might throw kale in my smoothie. I've heard it's really healthy. It's terrible, okay? Just don't. Better to not be healthy. In any case, let me, I'll, I'll bring this back around, I promise. Um, in any case, I got Tiffany this really nice Vitamix blender for Mother's Day, and it's like it'll blend rocks or whatever. It's just like this super blender, okay? It's the best. And, and I never use it. I don't use the blender. Uh, and, the, and the other day, I decided that I was going to use Tiffany's Vitamix blender. This is where things get messy. Those of you that know me well know that I am not always as sensitive and thoughtful as I could be, okay? Not always. And maybe that's because I don't, you know, wear the skinny jeans and, and uh, you know, do the avocado toast thing, all the stuff that apparently makes people really sensitive. I don't, I don't have that. But in any case, uh, I use the Vitamix to make a smoothie, put lots of fruit in there, berries, strawberries, and blueberries, whatever other berries come in, like the mixed berry bag, okay? Put all that stuff in there, um, and, and I blended it up. Great smoothie. The thing is, is that I left the blender out, and 
When you leave a blender that's blended a bunch of berries out for very long at all, what happens is those berries and all their little seeds and whatever, they dry onto the blender like concrete. They do not come off of there. And when the blender gets the berries onto the thing, uh, onto the blender, you know, whatever you call the container, okay? When it gets like that, you can't just wash them off. It's not like just la, 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 wash them off. You have to scrub and wash over and over. And still you're going to have like some of those little strawberry seeds and stuff and you're like with your fingernail getting them off, okay? It's a catastrophe. It really is. It's, it's a big problem. So be careful with that. But when the blender they're stuck to is your wife's blender and she loves her blender, and she is the one who ends up having to clean it because you forgot about the fact that you made a smoothie and left it out. This causes your wife to have emotions. <laughs> I have no doubt that the emotions that my wife experienced while fully washing her prize blender for the third time and still not getting everything off of it, they were probably not positive emotions toward me. She wasn't thinking, I just adore David and his thoughtless, careless attitude and personality, <laughs> ruining my prized blender. She wasn't pleased with me. And, and there were different ways she could go with those emotions, okay? One way that she could go is she could let those emotions take over. And she could scream at me and call me names and make me clean the blender and, you know, make me sleep on the couch and just, and just let, the, let the dam break and just let it happen, right? That's one option. She could do that. Another way she could go is she could let her intellect control and move those emotions where they ought to go. It's not bad that she might feel them. The question is, what's she going to do with them? And she could sort of control that, and she could think, I'm not particularly pleased with my husband right now, but having to wash a blender a few times, while very annoying, probably is not worth starting the humongous fight in our household over. And she could simply let me know that I ought not to do that anymore, and that it gave her emotions. Um, and, and that uh, next time I really need to clean up my mess. She could do that. Now, unfortunately, she took the first option. No, she didn't. She didn't. She didn't. She didn't take the first option. She took the second option because as she's grown and matured and become more and more a mature woman of God, she has progressively more and more and more used that mind that God has given her to take perspective when the dam breaks and emotion comes. And so she's reminded herself of what's true and then allowed that to control the level of emotional content that's going to come out. As a result, I'm still walking today and can come before you uh, and all that kind of thing because it was, I was a real jerk to not clean that blender up. She's learned to live her emotions out more and more with godliness. Um, I tend to focus myself a lot on the intellectual side of things. I love a lot about scripture that's about kind of the stuff, who God is and what he does and why he does it, whatever. That gets me excited. My emotions come from, from having my intellect sort of, uh, you know, come alive in the scripture. But I also need to make sure that I feed the emotional side of myself because there definitely is an emotional reaction to the scriptures, to what God has done in my life. And we often, in, in a Sunday morning service or in a teaching, we're often kind of, we're teaching, and so we, we tend to like uh, focus on that more intellectual side, get the intellectual stuff into our heads. But I need to, I know of myself, 
I need to make sure that I'm not missing this whole other part of what it means to be a human being, a person made in the image and likeness of God, and that is that emotional side. And in the Psalms, we're going to get to see that. We're going to get to see this amazing blending of the two. You've got all this stuff, this prophecy, and you've got this, this begging of the Lord and, and, and sadness and repentance and joy and all these emotions, and you also have this intellectual contact coming together. We'll often see things where at the beginning of a psalm, the person is really quite distraught, and by the end, you can see how they've worked out. But I know what's true. I know who you are, God. I know that I can trust you. So even though I've said all these things, how long will this happen? Why does this keep happening? By the end, I say, I know I can trust in you. And you just watch that happening, where the emotion is controlled by the truth. It's an amazing thing, because we need to learn how to be emotional in a godly way. And I think the Psalms are a great place to do that. We'll see a lot of pure, passionate emotion controlled and experienced with godly wisdom and patience. Now, my plan right now is to take five of the Psalms, the first five. Okay, not, not in one message, not today. We're going to get through one verse, just FYI. But enough messages in this series to get through five, the first five Psalms. And then what I want to do is, over time after that, we'll go back to um, other, other studies in Scripture. But from time to time, we're going to come back and hit the Psalms, hopefully five at a time, Lord willing, you know, in and out of this kind of series for either till we get through all 150 Psalms or till Jesus comes back, whichever comes first, I hope that Jesus comes back first. But I'm cool to go all through 150. It'll just take us a long time. Um, so let's, let's uh, get into it. Psalm 1, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. We'll also have it here on the screen. Um, should be right in the middle of your Bible. We're going to start with the first psalm, first verse. And we're not going to get any further. So it says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. It's a lot happening there. A lot of instruction, a lot of wisdom from, in a poetic form, in a passionate form. The psalmist is telling us what it looks like to be a blessed person. What it looks like to be a blessed person. I suppose you could read it as you receive blessings from this, but it's more like the person who is living this way is in a state of being blessed. It's experiencing the blessings of God because he or she is living this way. The idea here is that there is the kingdom way and that when you live the kingdom way, you're going to experience blessing. Now, don't get me wrong, let's not get right out of the gate, because there's going to be a lot in this first psalm as we go through it that's talking about kind of the blessings and, and who we are and, and God and so on and so forth. And just let's be clear, I'm not talking about your financial blessings. I'm not talking about you being healthy all the time. I'm not talking about all those kinds of things. That may happen. In fact, it often does. But there's certainly no guarantee, and that's certainly not what this psalm is promising. What we're being promised here is the kinds of blessings that are eternal. The kinds of blessings that no matter what happens, you feel good about. See, here's the thing. We, I think that what's happened in the last, say, 100 years, I'm not that old, but I've, I've been around a little while. I think what's happened is there was a time when, like, stuff was hard, right? Some of you were old enough to know when life was a lot harder. And when I say harder, I just mean, like, physically harder. Like, I got to go out. Still, when we go to Honduras, they got to go out and collect wood to do the cooking, 
Okay, they don't have to do much heating because it's relatively warm there, but they got to do the cooking. They got to go get the wood. They got to they got to collect the wood. They gotta, there's just a lot more work when we do concrete out there. We put it on the ground and we mix it with shovels. I don't do that anymore because I'm old and fat. But it was I do I would still if I had to. But that's the way they do it, right? We just throw it in the mixer, sit there, lean on it, wait till it's mixed up, and then pour it out. Totally different thing, right? So there are cultures who are still having to do a lot more work, and and we used to have to do a lot of stuff, and people would die more easily. We have something like what's happened now, and, and there's, there's a lot of concern, but this would have been more normal. Women died more often in childbirth. People died from death and disease because either doctors weren't around or they didn't have the answers to those things. We had smallpox. We had polio. We had all these things that would go on. And what's happened is I think that we've thought to ourselves, this is sort of the modern philosophical. When I say modern, I mean kind of 1600s to about 1950. The idea is we're going to, through science and through thought and through reason, we're going to start to make all these things to make life easier. Okay? Just think about the, the movement of technology. Hey, a wheel. Wow, that's easier to roll stuff with. You know, and, and you move on to, oh, I put the ox on the thing, and I can use the ox to do whatever, to all the way to the analog of that. Hey, I can make a tractor. I just turn it on, put some gas in it, here we go. And on and on and on to things like iPhones, and if I want, oh, my light is on. I'm just trying to shine my light in the world. There we go. If I want to, I can go on here, door dash it up, and I want food, hot food. I'm like, bloop, bloop, bloop. And Jeff uh, Joubert comes and drives uh, an order of hot food to my door. Drops it. Now because of the COVID, they just drop it. I don't have to mess with the person because that's always kind of like, what's this interaction supposed to be like? You know, I don't know you. You don't know. Okay, thanks cool. We're not really friends, but all right. It's better now. They just drop it off on your porch, and they send you a text with a picture of it on your porch. And you're like, hey, there's food out there. It's magic, right? We have made things so easy. You feel a little warm? Flip on the air conditioning. You don't have to hike up a mountain to get colder, right? We have ice cream. You think they had ice cream when there were no freezers? No, right? We have all kinds of stuff, And more and more and more and more and more, we have taken the things that are hard in life and found technological solutions to make them easier. And what has happened to our state of general happiness? Because remember, the equation was, we get rid of all this work, we become much happier. Eh. Did not work. We are not happier. Go back and read the books that people wrote when they had to write them by a candlelight because they didn't have electricity and their son just had died of, you know, whatever and they're going through this difficult life and they understood the difficulty of life but they had no expectation that everything should be easy and so on and you'll see they're just as happy if not probably much happier than the average person is today who doesn't have to do anything, right? We're like those people, if you've seen the movie Wall-E, and they're like on the ship and they just all ride around in these things all day, drinking Slurpees and like looking at the screen. This far. We're this far from that right now, right? There's a reason why they made that movie, and it's funny, because we're this far away from that. And it did not increase the happiness of the folks in Wally, and it's not going to increase our happiness. It's not going to increase our happiness. There are two ways, there are two paths. We read about it and we studied it when we did our uh, series in the Sermon on the Mount called Right Side Up recently. You can go back and watch those online if you want to. 
And we saw what Jesus said about it, about the kingdom way and the way of the world. And this, is, this, is what, this is one of the things that Jesus said during that Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, Matthew 7, 13 through 14. It says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. There is no question there are two ways. One that describes the life, the way of life that leads to blessing, to being a blessed person. Blessed man, blessed woman walks this way. The other describes the person that is destroying themselves and destroying others, the road that leads to destruction. That which Jesus talks about there, we are going to see throughout this first psalm. These two paths, these two ways. Now, there are a lot of people that will tell you that there are many ways. There are many ways, right? All roads lead to heaven, says the world. And that sounds so tolerant and understanding and so nice. The problem is that it's so obviously untrue. Obviously untrue. Those are lies. People who say you do you and all roads lead to heaven, all roads lead to God, whatever it is they say. They are lies, and they are horrible lies. Beyond the clear, clear and obvious violation, breaking of the logical law of non-contradiction, which if you want to know more about that, you can go watch. We have several skeptic series that are on the website if you want to hear about the law of non-contradiction. And I know it sounds exciting to learn about. Um, you can go check that out. But beyond that, the, we, I don't think we would want all roads to lead to the same place. I can think of some people who I don't want to be on the same, I don't want to be heading to the same place as, because that would suggest that there's no justice, that love would have no meaning, that a person who does evil and calls it good is essentially on the same road as the person who does actual good, true good. I don't like that. I don't like that. Everything under that series or system of all roads lead to the same place. That means everything is true, which means nothing is true. It's not desirable. No, Here, here's the truth. Here's the truth. Jesus is the truth. That's it. There are two ways, two roads, only two. Following Jesus is one way. Okay? That's a particular way, the narrow path, Jesus calls it. Here we talk about the righteous person, right, the godly person in, in Psalm 1. The other road, there's only one other road. You're like, but wait, there's a lot of other ways besides Jesus. Yep, it's all the same road. There's the Jesus road and there's the not Jesus road. You're on the Jesus road or you're on the wide road. That's why it's wide. It's got room for lots of ways. Those are the two ways. Would it be nice for me to be able to tell you, hey, it's anything you want. Do you whatever? Would I be more popular? I don't know, maybe. But I'd rather be telling you the truth. And the truth is, there are two ways. This psalm is going to make it very clear what those ways are and what they look like. The person who follows Jesus is blessed. The person who does not follow Jesus is not. Now, I'm not saying they may not have health or wealth or something like that, but those are not the blessings we're talking about here. Those are not the things that comfort you in the darkness of night. Your money cannot help. You can't eat money when, when things go bad. Everything's, everything is so easy, Right? We, as we said earlier, with the technology and the whatever, and we feel like we don't really necessarily need God that much, 
Some of us sort of pay him that Sunday morning thing. Like, for some people, it's kind of like insurance. It's like, I'm going to live like this all week. I might as well go ahead and put my time in on Sunday morning. Maybe get a little check at Mark in the other box or whatever, right? But we feel like we can get along without him. So many people in this town, in this area, feel like they can until what? Until bad things happen. Until the electricity goes out and there's no one to call at the police when someone's at your door. We run out of food, we have a pandemic, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, all that confidence that people have in themselves goes away. And they start to realize, you know what? Everything that I've done on my way does not provide the answers I need when things actually get difficult. And every one of us will face the end of our lives if the Lord doesn't come back first for those of us who are saved. We'll face those difficulties. And if you don't have answers because your way was the wide way and it just led to destruction, that will be your answer. Destruction. And there will be no hope. Praise God, there's hope in Jesus. So the person who follows Jesus is blessed and the person who does not is not. First Psalm, out of the gate, is just singing this truth. Literally, it's what it's for. It's a song with wisdom and emotion And the first thing we learn in this song of wisdom is not what the blessed person does, but what he or she does not do. Does not do. It starts that way. It says this, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, this is an important one. Let's let's dig in with our minds here because this is a really interesting one that I've found. As an attorney, attorney and counselor at law, and as a pastor, where part of my role is counseling, uh, this is figurative language, walks in the council. Obviously, you don't walk literally in council, right? But it's figurative language, it's poetry, but it's really clear to understand, right? Walking in someone's council is living out the counsel that you've been given, the advice or the purpose or the whatever that someone has given you, then you walk it out, you live it out. So walking in the council of who? Of the ungodly. Here we are specifically talking about ungodly people, which is to say people who are not following Jesus. It's that simple. They're ungodly. They don't know any better. They're, we, we call people lost people because they're lost, just like you and I were. Lost people who are not following Jesus. They're living morally wrong lives. They're just doing their path, their way, not God's way. Wicked people, which you and I were prior to the saving grace of Jesus Christ through faith. They have not been made new in Christ. They have not been made spiritually alive. Now, that doesn't mean that people who don't follow Christ could never give good advice. We know, Romans 2 and our experience tells us, there's sometimes the people who are not believers give good advice. They also can do the math. And figure out, you know, should I jump off this cliff or not jump off this cliff? Most of them are going to be like, it's probably going to hurt if you jump off the cliff, right? They're not like, jump off, jump off. We don't know any better. That's not what I'm saying. It's not that they can't ever give good advice. But those who have not built their houses on the rock of Jesus Christ are not dependable sources of advice and counsel. They're not dependable because while they may be right about some things, they have not built their foundation on the right things in general. They have not built their foundation in God. You do not share a foundation 
for your morality, for the way you live your life, for the way you are in your family, for the way you are sexually, for the way you are with your money, and all those things. You do not have a common foundation with an unbeliever. So while they may, you may have a Venn diagram, and in the middle of that, there are some things that you share. The fact is, you don't know what's in and what's out of that Venn diagram with the ungodly. So you cannot rely on them for advice because they're not going to the common source. They're ungodly. Their advice is corrupted by sin. The same sin that corrupted us all before we were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's just the way it is. I would not want someone to have come to me for advice in my pre-saved, unregenerate, unsaved state. They're not likely to have gotten the best advice. Here's where I would really warn you. There are times and there are situations in life where you need some counsel. And for some folks, it goes kind of like this. Maybe when they need counsel, they go and they find maybe uh, a brother, sister, a series of brothers and sisters in Christ who are mature, godly, biblical. They pray with them about their issue. They go to Scripture. They get good advice. Okay? But all too often, the problem with that advice is it's really not the advice the person wanted to hear. And so they do this. They run the option. And they go, you know what? I know other Christians. And they're thinking the specific ones in their mind. Maybe not quite as mature. Maybe not quite as long in the Lord. Maybe not quite as knowledgeable of the Scripture yet. Right? Maybe younger Christians, baby Christians. And they go, I'll go to them. They're still Christians. And so they go to them. And they, and they try to get advice there. And the advice is a little more to their liking. But these are Christians. So it probably still isn't exactly what they want to hear. And they go, you know what? That's a... A bummer, I kind of really wanted to hear this thing, because that's what I want to do, right? And so then they go, you know, Stacy and Billy and Jimmy and Bob, they're unbelievers, but they're quote-unquote good people, right? People think they're good people, so they probably have good advice, but they don't follow Christ. And they go to Billy, J- I don't remember what it said, Stacy, Jimmy, and Bob, and surprise, they give exactly the advice that you wanted to hear. And you're like, okay, that's good. And then you walk in that. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Three times in the Proverbs, the Bible talks about the benefits of a multitude of counselors. Godly counselors. Acts Church is led by a group of elders who counsel one another and make decisions to try to serve God's will for this body. A multitude of counselors. We have a staff that I constantly seek counsel from, godly counsel from, for day-to-day decisions about what we do here. I also have my wife and I have friends and I have many of you who I go to when I need counsel. A lot of times that means that I have to adjust what I wanted to do according to the counsel that I've received about what I ought to do. I have to submit to the godly counsel of people in my life. That's what wisdom looks like. Wisdom looks like that. Listening to and walking in the counsel of the godly. It's what we're talking about here. Now, if you find yourself seeking counsel from the world and from those who don't follow Christ, you are likely to go astray, far astray. And you will not experience the blessings of a godly person Because the inverse of this verse, blessed 
if, is the one who does not walk in the, in the counsel of the ungodly, says something about what happens to the person who does walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Implied is not blessed, not experienced blessing, not in that state of being blessed because you're not walking in the counsel of the godly. Let me give you, for instance, about sort of the ungodly, godly thing. I have recently had a couple conversations with a couple different people in the recent past, neither of whom would consider the Bible to really be a real authority for their life. They probably would say that the parts of it that they agree with were authoritative. You probably know some folks like this. But the other parts, it's like, no, I don't really consider all of it authoritative. After all, it's old and it was written by men, right? So I had these conversations. And in both cases, these people would definitely consider themselves to be quote-unquote good people. And in fact, if you ask most people to know them, I think that they would say, these are good folks, quote-unquote, right? They're not murdering anybody that we know of, and so on, okay? In both conversations, these people were just pronouncing, absolutely just pronouncing, there is nothing wrong with having sex outside of marriage. And they said that the people who think that, that there is something morally wrong about sex outside of marriage, are holding on to out-of-date moral rules, There are rules that simply do not apply to us anymore. After all, people want to have sex when they're not married. And after all, it seems that they're going to have sex when they're not married, whether they ought to or not. So in the minds of these friends of mine, why would we hold on to a moral rule about something that's so hard for people to do and that's old? It doesn't apply anymore. Nobody thinks that. If you asked everybody in the country, should you be able to have sex before you're married, most people undoubtedly would say, of course, sure, go ahead. You do you. All paths lead where you want them to, right? In both cases, these were both people who were themselves having sex outside of marriage. It's weird that they gave that advice. It's no surprise that they've justified their own behavior and would counsel others in the same way. They do not share a common foundation in Jesus Christ and the Scriptures, so they will not give good counsel. It's just that simple. They will not give good counsel. Of course, of course, of course, people who are not married want to have sex. They don't want to wait till they're married. I know how that goes. Okay? I'm not saying that ever affected me, but there are people who feel that way. You didn't laugh at that. All right, that's cool. Um, there are people who want to do all kinds of things that are sexually immoral, right? From pornography to adultery to homosexual sex to all kinds of other things the Bible calls sexual immorality. Maybe if we didn't all want to do those things, the Bible wouldn't have to spend so much time talking about and warning us about sexual morality. Yeah, I get it. People want to. We know we have these desires. The, the, the question is not whether we have these desires. The question is, who ought, we be, who ought we be going to to get counsel about what to do with our desires? Should we be going to Scripture? Should we be going to those who are godly and who know Scripture? Or should we be going to ourselves or to the ungodly? The answer should be pretty easy here in church on Sunday. We go to Scripture. We go to the godly multitude of counselors when we say, I have this desire, whether it be for sexual morality, which you already know you ought not to do, or whether it be for any number of things, for any other, any other number of things. Here's the thing. When we get counsel from the ungodly, we get ungodly counsel, and we walk in the counsel of the ungodly, we walk ungodly. 
These are very simple things to figure out. There are other times for a lot of people where you just don't think you need counsel at all. We're so used to making kind of all our own decisions, living that American life, right? I'm American. I make my own decisions. I'm in charge. I don't need anybody's help. I don't need anybody's advice. In fact, going to other people for advice and counsel makes me feel weak. I can make my own decision. I can do my own thing. I don't need counsel. But there's nothing biblical about that. You have a new job offer. I'll make the decision myself. I don't need counsel. Why would I need counsel? I know whether to take this job or not. Moving away, getting married, continuing to date someone, whether you ought to do that or not, buying an expensive item, deciding where your kids should go to school, voting for the next politician, whatever it may be. Somehow all of these decisions have fallen into the jurisdiction of people just making their own decision without counsel, or with at least very little counsel, without advice from the many godly people who God has put in our lives who love us. Now we don't go to them, and we don't get counsel. I know I've made mistakes many times by doing something, making a decision that I did not seek counsel for, did not seek godly counsel when it was right there. I could have done it. I think sometimes uh, it was just, just because it's the way I do things. It's sort of the, the culture. I make my own decisions. And sometimes it's possible that I didn't want to hear what they had to say because they probably would have said the opposite of the thing that I wanted to do. Why are we assuming that we know the best about everything when there are people who love us and more importantly love Jesus Christ who could help us? Why do we do that? We ought to regularly seek out the counsel of the godly, mature people in our lives who appoint us to Scripture and, very importantly, who have the courage in Christ to tell us the truth. It's another thing about asking for counsel, right? It's not always easy for the other person, for the person you're asking. And this is the last thing I'm going to say about counsel this morning. If you're going to give somebody godly advice, make sure you love them enough to tell them the truth. It's too easy to soften the scriptures. I see it all the time. Which is to say, when we soften the scriptures, we pervert the scriptures. When we soften what God has said to do, it's no longer what God said to do. We're breaking it, we're bending it, we're perverting it. Better to say nothing than to soften the scriptures. And we do it because we don't want conflict, right? We don't want to offend. We are very, very concerned with offending people. And listen, hear me. We ought to care about how we treat people. We ought to care about making sure everything that we do is seasoned with love and affection. But we have to tell the truth. We have to tell the truth. When your friend or family member asks for counsel or advice on some moral issue, and you know what you have to tell them biblically is not what they want to hear. It will be hard to lovingly speak truth to them because you'll be concerned about conflict, about offense. Maybe they don't want to be your friend anymore. Do it anyway. Tell them the truth anyway. You may end up, it's unlikely that if you live a godly life and you mature and you become a, a, someone who gives good and godly counsel to people over your life, it's unlikely that you will never have to quote this verse to them that I'm about to read to you. 
that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write to the Galatians. And here it is, Galatians 4.16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? You're probably going to have to quote that to a few people. Because sometimes they will make you that. And that's the fear. That's why you soften it. Either don't counsel people or tell them the truth. There is no third way where you sort of soften it up. I know I've done that. I know I've been that person in my life. And I know that it doesn't work out well for them, for me, for anybody. And so I'd rather just either not counsel or speak the truth. In love. Seasoned with salt. All that beautiful stuff. But the truth. So you have to stand... You have to stand strong in the truth even when it causes conflict for you. Even when it causes conflict for the other person. Whether asking for counsel is going to get conflict because you know they're going to tell you something you don't want to hear or they're giving counsel is going to cause you conflict because you know you're going to tell them something they don't want to hear. We've got to face those conflicts because truth should conflict quite often with our desires in this broken and fallen world. Speaking of standing, the next part of our passage says, nor stands in the path of sinners. Nor stands in the path of sinners. This is about living your life like sinners. Pretty simple. You're standing in their path, right? You're going with the flow, the way that they go. The way that the sinner, the unrighteous, the wicked, the ungodly goes. Living our lives like sinners. The Hebrew word here is not someone who has sinned before. That's all of us, right? It is someone who actively is engaged in a lifestyle of sinning. Don't walk in that path. Don't stand in the path with those whose lives seem to be dedicated to living immorally and sinful, who do not honor God, but instead live their lives as sinners. Do not stand in their path. We're all sinners. Those of us in Christ are saved by grace, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. It's rising again. Praise God for that. The command here is not to live like the world. That's the command. Like the unsaved, like the people who are immoral and wicked, like the people that we were. How often in the scripture is it talking about, you used to be this. We all used to be this. No longer walk in that. That's this. That's what this is talking about, those places where you see in the letters of Paul, so on, where he's like, hey, you once were X, Y, Z, now you are in Christ. That's this. We don't stand in the path of sinners. We're not to do it. We're to live like those who have been made new, not like those who are still slaves to sin, but servants and followers of Christ. But, but this, this is, is not really a big deal, right? Not really a problem for American Christians, right? It's a quote from an article by Ronald J. Sider. The article is called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. Why don't Christians live what they preach? Here's a quote. Scandalous behavior is rapidly destroying, what's the path lead to? Destruction. Rapidly destroying American Christianity. By their daily activity, most Christians, in quotes here, regularly commit treason. With their mouths, they claim that Jesus is Lord, but with their actions, they demonstrate allegiance to money, sex, and self-fulfillment. The findings in numerous national polls conducted by highly respected pollsters like the Gallup Organization and the Barna Group are simply shocking. 
Gallup and Barna, laments evangelical theologian Michael Horton, hand us survey after survey demonstrating that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. Divorce is more common among born-again Christians than in the general American population. Only 6% of evangelicals tithe. White evangelicals are the most likely people to object to neighbors of another race. Josh McDowell has pointed out that the sexual promiscuity of evangelical youth is only a little less outrageous than that of their non-evangelical peers. If you're looking at the path of sinners... It looks like a lot of Christians are standing there. It's hypocrisy. This is standing in the path of sinners. It will not lead to a state of blessing. It will not lead to a state of blessing. It will lead to destruction. It will destroy you. It will destroy your life. We cannot follow God and love the world. You cannot 1 John 2, 15-17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, loving the world has nothing to do with loving people, by the way. God so loved the world in terms of the people. It has to do with loving the things we think the world offers. That's what makes us, puts us in this position to stand in the path of sinners. We start to love the things we think the world offers, and we often start to love them more than we love God. And how can we tell? Just look at our lives. You can't love God and love sexual immorality. you got to choose one. You can't love God and love cheating your neighbor out of money. You can't love God and do all kinds of things. This list of things that God says are good for you. It's not how I made you. It's not who I want you to be. You can't have them both. So what we show consistently I'm not talking about necessarily you, but according to these surveys, apparently most of evangelical America, or much of evangelical America, is living just like their neighbors who are unsaved. We cannot hope to live in blessing and see God work through us if we walk in the counsel of the ungodly and stand in the path of sinners loving the world. Last part of verse 1. Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. This one's kind of interesting. It's about kind of being in the assembly of the mocker or the scorner. We don't use those words that much. But you sort of know what they mean, right? There are people in this world who mock and scorn the name of Jesus Christ. They mock God. Now, how many of you would allow someone to mock or scorn your mother or your father or your children or your husband or your wife or your friends or whoever? Most of us wouldn't. 
We'd be like, hey, don't say that. Say that by my mama, right? We'd, ste- we'd step up on that. And yet, none of those people that we would protect for sure were God who became a man who died for us, who had done no wrong. None of them have given us one trillionth. You can't even talk about in degree what Jesus Christ has given us. And yet we would come to their defense and to defend their honor. And oftentimes we don't for the Lord. He sacrificed himself to save us. And we allow him to be mocked quite often. We owe an allegiance. We owe honor and our whole lives to God. And our society and our culture mocks and scorns the name of Jesus. There have always been scorners. Always. We are not to associate ourselves as one of them. Whether it's the disrespectful, irreverent, blasphemous way that some TV shows and movies and songs and things like that talk about God, or even our own friends and our coworkers, and the way that they sometimes might talk or joke or scorn or mock God, we must not be counted among them. We've sort of done away with honor in society. It's sort of come to an end in, in, in the last couple of generations, starting in the 60s, really, and then moving forward. Because for a long time, there have been people who demanded honor and did not deserve it. And we sort of took that and said, okay, nobody gets honor. Nobody gets honor. And so we have a society that largely doesn't have honor for people. There will always be those people who demand honor and don't deserve it. But let me tell you something. The honor that God deserves should not be questioned. He does deserve your honor. We ought to think very hard what we were saying with our lives when we laugh with those who scorn God or we sit with them without saying a word. We ought to take these things a lot more seriously than we do without becoming pharisaical. We ought to honor God in his word. It ought to be known among those who know us that we honor God. We don't sit in the seat of the scorners. There's no blessing in dishonoring God. The one who's blessed, the the man who's blessed, does not sit in the seat of the scornful. That means if you do sit in the seat of the scornful, you're not experiencing that blessing. God is God. He is perfect, holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-loving, worthy of all honor and all praise and all glory. It is just and right and fitting that we should give him honor and glory with our lives, with everything that we do. We dishonor him any time, any time that we sit with those who actually are scorning him or that we ourselves refuse to be identified with him. If you got put on trial, I don't remember whose quote this is, but if I got, it says something like, if I got put on trial I'd like to, for being a Christian, I'd like to be able to be convicted. I'd like there to be enough evidence that I'm a believer, that I'm a Christ follower, that could actually convict me of being a Christian. Some of us might have to search a little bit for evidence. Too many people would say, I didn't know that that person was a Christian. Why? Well, he or she never said anything about it. In some cases, yeah, we used to make fun of God or whatever all the time. They never said anything about it. 
And when I look at it, their lives, according to all these surveys, look just like mine. We have to honor God. Or we end up being kind of like the scorners. Now, Lord willing, we're going to study deeper into these two paths as we go through Psalm 1 with our next message. But this first verse is a real and stark warning right, coming right out of the gate at the beginning of the Psalms for us to seriously consider our lives. Who's counseling us? What do our lives look like in the way that we're living them? Are we honoring God and standing up for the name of God? All of us fall and fail. It happens in so many ways as we walk through this broken and fallen world. If you find yourself this morning feeling conviction as we study this song, this psalm, this psalm of wisdom, there is great hope. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're a Christ follower and you know you need to confess and repent right now because you have walked in the counsel of the ungodly, because you've stood in the path of sinners or sat in the seat of the scornful, confess and repent today. He'll be faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And do not walk in those ways any longer. That you might experience the blessings of God, which we're going to hear more about as we go through this. If you're not a Christ follower, and you know you aren't experiencing God's blessings on your life, the kind of joy, the kind of shalom and wholeness, peace, that gets you through each day, that no matter what happens, you draw your strength from Him, mounting up on wings like eagles, able to handle things that you, that you know you could not do yourself, able to trust in him regardless of what happens, death, disease, whatever comes, you've got him. If you don't have that, if you're not experiencing that blessing, you can have that today. You can be saved from your own sin and the chains of this wicked world. Be reconciled to God and have faith in his saving grace. God tells us in the Bible that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Thanks again for listening. We hope the Lord blessed you through it. We'd like to invite you to join us on one of our Sunday morning services at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Whether you would just like to find out some more info about Acts Church or if you'd like to plug in and take some next steps in your faith, AxeChurchNW.org is a great place to start. You can also email us at info at AxeChurchNW.org. There's always more content coming, whether it's on YouTube or on our podcast channel. So be sure to subscribe to both of those to always get the newest content from Axe Church. Until next time, we hope you have a blessed week.